Well, it's not surprising that this past week, as we kind of jumped into a series on rest, that I had a very, very hard time resting. I don't know. Anybody else face that this week? You know, it was our kids' last week home from college. They headed off this weekend. And I'm speaking this afternoon in Awana, so I'm preparing for that. And yesterday, I had an over two-hour conversation with a friend who's kind of boots on the ground in Israel and what's some of the things that are going on over there. And I'm like, man, I need a break. And uh, But that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the need for rest, why God designed in the rhythm of life that we have rest. That's the title of our series, A Rhythm with Rest. Last week, we talked about the reality that many of us live at a pace that we know in our hearts and our minds is unsustainable. We talked about uh, the SR-71 Blackbird, the fastest plane of all time that breaks 2,000 miles an hour. You know, when it was retired here to to the uh, Air and Space Museum in Dulles from California, to uh, D.C. here, to Dulles, it, it came at uh, a record pace of uh, 68 minutes. Uh, so that's pretty fast. And most of us are trying to do that, right? We said that uh, really God, the way God designed us is that we are to live more like a single prop Cessna. At about 150 miles an hour, it just kind of floats through the air and uh, moves forward and so forth and so on. And that's just so hard for so many of us. It always goes back to the beginning of time where God created. He created in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested, not because he was tired, uh, but because he was satisfied. The reality is the word for rest has this idea of satisfaction. He created. It was good. He created all human beings. He said, that's very good. And then he took a step back, and he rested. He was satisfied with the work that he had done. And last week, we talked about building the foundation with a life with a rhythm, with rest, that we were created in God's image, that we reflect him, that we were designed to create, but then we were also designed to step away from our creative behavior, our action, the calling that we have to engage in this rhythm where we work and where we rest, where we work and where we rest. The thread of work and rest goes through the entire Bible. We're going to discuss another element of that today. Jesus, he rested not because he was broken and fallen. So rest is, the need for rest isn't a result of the fall. He was a perfect man and yet he rested. And we see that in his own rhythm of life. After the fall, however, for those of us who are human beings with a fallen nature, unlike Jesus Christ, rest is difficult and work is filled with toil. We know that that's part of the original curse. Oftentimes in my own journey, I struggle with the reality as to whether or not my doing, the work, my performance, well, it's, is it out of performance or is it out of my relationship with Jesus? In other words, is my relationship with God such that I feel my identity, my satisfaction in life in him, and then I launch out to work? To do, to create as he has designed me to? Or do I work and create to get a sense of myself? A sense of my value? A sense of who I am? And I think that that's probably a struggle for most of us in one way, shape, or form. We ended our time last week with the question, do you experience a rhythm with rest? And a lot of people comment on the way out of the auditorium last week, just the struggle to find that cycle of working. And when I rest, truly resting. You see, some of us, when we're at rest, we're really still working. 
an industry I just, someone spoke to me on the way out saying that an industry, a vacation is often referred to as deferred work. It's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. One of our key passages in this series, and we'll pick it up more next week, is found in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we're going to talk about what that means in our journey with Jesus Christ In our partnership with him, we walk through life with a yoke. Now again, for most of us, this is a very difficult concept. We're not going to, most of us are not going to go home this afternoon and plow the field with our yoke of oxen. It's just not the way we live today. And so we have a hard time understanding the reality of a yoke and what that means and what Jesus is really saying. Today, we are going to cover the Old Testament Sabbath. We're going to talk about what that was. Primarily, we're going to talk about why it was, what God was trying to accomplish Three things that God was trying to accomplish by implementing the Sabbath. And it it wasn't just to take a break. Between the beginning of creation and Moses, we have about 2,500 years. So the God rested and the Sabbath were pretty far apart in the journey of people. We have Noah, then we have Abraham, we have Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel. We have Joseph being sold into slavery. And at the, after all of that, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. His family comes to Egypt, 70 in all. Then we have slavery for 400 years. And then Moses. Moses runs away from Egypt. He spends 40 years being trained by God on the backside of the desert, tending sheep. And then God tells him to go to Egypt to declare to Yul Brenner, let my people go. All right, you know the story. The most epic conflict of all time, Moses and Pharaoh standing together. The most powerful Pharaoh of all time. I don't know about you, but I, I kind of like his hairdo. I don't know if you saw, if you saw this one, the, the side ponytail with nothing else on his head. I think we should try to bring that back. What do you think? <laughs> Long gray ponytail on the side of my head. What do you think about that? I think if just a couple of us do it, everyone will be doing it next year. Okay. (laughs) When it's all said and done, there are about 500,000 to 2 million estimates vary of Jewish people who were leaving captivity in Egypt. Their identity for 400 years was slavery. Their identity was day after day, week after week. You understand? There was no Sabbath, right? There was no idea. Oh, we should take the weekend off. There was no weekend. It was just day after day, day after day, slaving away. Finally, Pharaoh lets them go. They get to the Red Sea. He chases after them. Oh no, what are we going to do? God parts the Red Sea. They come through. The Pharaoh and his troops try to come through. Then the, the, the water returns, drowns all the troops. And here they are. All these people in the middle of the wilderness with no apparent plan. Where are we going? Oh, the promised land. What's that? Okay, that's way over there somewhere. And suddenly... All these people, they realize they need to be fed. There is no society. There's no culture. There's no government. All of that is still in the process of being set up. 
Exodus chapter 16, starting at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. The whole assembly with hunger. Oh yeah, if we, if we could at least eat ourselves to death back in Egypt. With the way this is going so far. Now before we're too hard on these folks for having seen God do amazing things and then suddenly doubt. uh, I'd like to think that if I saw God part the Red Sea that I'd be like I'm all in you know. And my faith would be great no matter what happened from that point forward. But in the face of hunger and not knowing where this was going to go they grumbled. And I have to realize that I've seen God do many amazing things in my life. And then on the heels of that I too find myself doubting God and grumbling about where things are going. There were 400 years of silence and then God showed up and the direction was unclear. And in the process of all of this, one of the things he did early on was he instituted the Sabbath. And today I want to share with you three principles of why God instituted the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath about? Yes, we understand the rhythm of rest, but There's way more to it than that. And the first thing is this, that the Sabbath is about trust for God's provision. When the people failed to take that rhythm of rest, and I would suggest that here today, although we are not under the law, and we're going to discuss more about that next week. If we do not live with a rhythm of rest, what we do is we evidence our lack of trust in God's provision. There's part of it that says, I shouldn't be resting today. I have more to do. I have more to do. I have more to do. Oh my gosh, who's, where, where are the bills? How are the bills going to get paid? Oh, I just need a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And when we fail to rest, we evidence a lack of trust in God's provision. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. In other words, do they trust me? We're going to kind of ferret out. We're going to beat out of the bushes whether or not the people trust me. They shall go out and they shall gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, the theme of bread is a whole different theme that we could pull the thread on through the Bible, right? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. This bread is my, uh, is my body. All sorts of thematic uh, theme, th- themes through the Bible, and bread is one of them. But God used the most foundational element, the need for food, in this case, bread, as a test For whether they were truly going to trust in God's provision. Verse 13. In the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing. (laughs) Fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? 
For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. Now, an omer is about two quarts. So pick up about two quarts or so for each person in your family. The word for manna is linguistically similar to the phrase, what is it? So every morning they went out and they go, what is it? Go, hey kids, go gather an omer of, what is it? They spent 40 years eating, what is it? As God's provision for them. They needed to trust that God was going to provide. Verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Gather for today what you need for today and don't leave any till tomorrow morning. What did they do? They left it for tomorrow morning. And when they woke up, it was rotten. It was spoiled. Ah, but then there's a plot twist to the story. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and they told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath. A holy Sabbath to the Lord. Excuse me. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Wait. Didn't he just tell them to not do that? All right, read on. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. What do you know? Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So what did they do? On the Sabbath, they woke up. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And then God sent them that orange angry emoji face. He said, don't do that. I said, six, five days you shall gather and you'll eat it all. You won't save any because if you don't, you save it. That will rot. It will stink. It will have mold. It will have worms in it. On the sixth day, gather enough for two days because on the seventh day, you'll wake up and it won't stink. And when you go out, there won't even be any to gather. Verse 35, the story wraps up this way. It says the people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. Now, at this point in the story, we don't know that they're going to get to the promised land, likely in a year or two. They're going to get there, and then they're going to refuse to go in. So Moses wrote this in retrospect right down the road. And so we know the end of the story that they got there, and they refused to go in. And so now we hear that they were stuck for 40 years with these periods of time. For five days, they had to gather something that showed up on the the ground, the what's it, and they had to eat it every day. On the sixth day, they had to gather 
two days worth. And unlike the previous five days, it wasn't going to rot the next day. When they woke up for 40 years on the seventh day, there was none to even gather. Why? God was training them to trust him in their daily journey for their daily provision. There was a rhythm. There was a pattern. And all of it was miraculous. I'm going to provide for you. And I'm going to miraculously make it spoil five days a week if you try to save it. And then on the seventh day, I'm going to miraculously provide none at all. Because the stuff that you gathered yesterday is going to be sufficient. And the question is, do we trust God's provision? The Sabbath was designed to be a period of time to trust God. Many of us struggle resting because we struggle to trust God. I got to get more. Where's the bill? How are these bills going to be paid if I don't just keep working? If you talk to many older men in our congregation, and I would suggest women as well, you would find people who have been walking with Christ for many, 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 many years who have experienced, especially in their younger years, where God was teaching them to trust. Men who started their own business, construction business, and suddenly all the work dried up. And right as they were running out of resources, God provided the next job. And I know construction workers and painters and all kinds of professions where people needed to trust God, especially with those three teenagers and no health care and struggling to get a business started. And the whole point that they would tell you today is God was walking them through a journey of trust. Taking the time to work, taking the time to rest, to reflect on my trust. Do I trust God for the journey in front of me? And when we trust God in the rhythm of life with rest, we are learning that he will provide. I was reading a story a couple days ago about a downhill skiers who are blind. Is that hard for you to imagine? It's very hard for me to imagine. And how skiers, these blind skiers, had guides who were telling them each step of the way they how to traverse the hill. I have a very difficult time traversing the hill with two perfectly working eyes. I don't know about you. And the ultimate rest and trust that the one who is the guide is going to provide the direction necessary to be able to accomplish the task. And when we rest, when we work, and then when we step back satisfied in our walk with God that we find our identity in him, we are called in that relationship then to work, to produce, to create, and then take a step back and rest. It evidences our trust in his provision. Number two, not only does the Sabbath, is the Sabbath about trust for God's provision, it's also about then remembering God's provision. We show that we trust him and then we have an opportunity to sit back and remember all that God has done. I don't know about you, but for me, I have a very difficult time celebrating what God has done because I'm so busy now focusing on what needs to happen next. I've been accused by many, my wife included, of being a very bad celebrator of life. Especially in my own life. Especially what God has done in and through me. 
And my guess is that a good percentage of us here today have a difficult time celebrating what God has done, remembering what God has done because we're so focused on what needs to happen next. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. He connects the Sabbath to remembering God's provision. You used to be slaves, and now you're not. And that is something to be celebrated. You used to work yourself to death. Your identity was in slavery, and now it is not. It's in me. It's in me. We're commanded to work. We're commanded to be creative. We aren't commanded to have our identity wrapped up in what we do. We are human beings. We are not human doings. We get our being identity with God and in God alone. And then we do. You know, if, if I could talk to many of us here this morning, I think that there would be many who would admit that a lot of our identity is caught up in what we do. What's the first question when a man meets another man? Hey, good to meet you. What do you do? Why do we do that? Why do we do that? No, tell me about you. (laughs) I want to know you. I don't, What you do is an outgrowth of who you are. It isn't who you are. And the problem is that we are, our hearts are idle making machines, right? That we can take anything other than God and make it that important, including what we do. And when we take a rest, when we take a break and sit back in the rhythm of life, We remember that I am not a slave to what I do. Do you feel like a slave to what you do today? It means that life is out of balance. And I think you probably need a little bit of rest. Truett Cathy is the founder of Chick-fil-A. Most Chick-fil-A's are owned by people who follow Jesus Christ. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday... And I asked a friend who is an owner of a Chick-fil-A, kind of beans in, beans out. How much do you lose by being closed on Sunday? In other words, on a daily basis, what, what is the kind of the, the take from an average Chick-fil-A? He said, I, if you want to look at it that way, I lose $22,000 every Sunday that I'm closed. And he said, and I'm a small Chick-fil-A. He said, there are others who are much larger who I'm sure lose $30,000 or more. The reality is that with all the Chick-fil-A's in the nation, Chick-fil-A loses $66 million every Sunday. Beans in, beans out. 
However, he went on to say this. He said, because of our willingness to try to honor God, provide a rhythm of rest, not because we're under the Sabbath law, but just that reality of trying to create a rhythm of rest. There are many people who respect us for that. Many people who respect that idea. Not just believers. He said, I believe that Chick-fil-A would lose money globally if we opened on Sunday because all those who honor our efforts to honor the rhythm of rest and because of the customer service and because of the high quality of food would be frustrated with us. I think we'd ultimately lose money if we opened up. And he said, because of of this honoring, because of the rhythm of rest, because of our high quality and our customer service, he said that the idea is that if we were on one corner and and a competitor fast food was on the other corner, we won't mention any of those, that Chick-fil-A makes 2.5 times more money each week in six days than the competitor does in seven. A rhythm with rest. I had a friend who walked into a Chick-fil-A and behind the counter was a young man who was clearly in training And you know, when you get something from across the counter, your first response is to say thank you. And because he's in training, his first response was to say what everyone typically says when you, someone says thank you to you, you're going to say you're welcome. And so he starts to say you're welcome. And then he realizes what he's supposed to say, which is my pleasure. And he says, you're my pleasure. And so there's this awkward moment between these two men. You know, but when you stop and realize that we are designed for rest and part of that rhythm with rest is a declaration that we are trusting God for the provision of our lives. It is number two, a time to remember God's ongoing blessing and provision in our lives and the willingness to not just look to the next thing, but stop and thank God for what it is that he has done. Number three, not only is it about trusting God for his provision, not only is it remembering God's provision, number third and finally for today, it's, it's the realizing that we are set apart for God's purposes. That we are set apart for God's purposes. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, this is the passage where the Ten Commandments is given. And it says this, it says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it Holy. That word holy is the Hebrew word kadosh, and it means to be set apart, to remove from common use. This day is set apart from other days. It's set apart from the common use. There's a reason for all of that. And on that day, some things are supposed to happen. Trusting God, remembering that, remembering his provision. But the day is set apart. The first three commandments of the Ten Commandments are between our, us and our relationship with God. 
You'll have no other gods. You'll not make a graven image, no idols. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Six, from, from commandment five through ten, six of the commandments are between us and other people. You shall not steal, you shall not murder, so forth and so on. Most of the commandments, eight out of the ten, are very brief. You shall not steal. Boom. You shall not commit adultery. Boom. Two out of the ten have much longer explanations. The first one is commandment two, which is all about images, creating idols. And because we are, as I said, idol factories in our hearts, we have a tendency to create idols out of almost anything in our life. And God says, don't do that. The way we don't do that is the other commandment that has a much longer explanation, which is this one. Commandment number four. When you stop, when you rest, when you honor God, when you show your trust of him, when you remember all that he has done, two things happen. We get our relationship with God right, the first three commandments, especially the one to have no idols. When we recognize that each rest period, as it were, is a time to set aside all those things that take our attention, that are idols. The other thing that then is put in order is our relationships with people. When we take time to rest and we honor God and we interact with him and we reflect on who we are, who we are in him, we get our relationship with him right and then we can get our relationship with everybody else right. And here's what it says in Exodus 31, 13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, very important, above all, all you shall keep my Sabbath. Why is it above all? Because it is that commandment when we take a rest that we are able to get all the others in order. When we're able to reflect on our relationship with God and bring all of our relationships with people to him. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And that word sanctify is the exact same word as in chapter 20 of Exodus, set aside as holy. That's the same word, kadosh. So sanctify you. He sanctifies you. He sets you apart. He takes you out of the daily rhythm and common use. You are set aside for extraordinary use in his eyes. In me, you have a different life. You are no longer set for common use. Everything that you do, the work that you have, the work that you will launch out to do tomorrow, whatever it is, that is set aside and holy because you are sanctified in me. Ezekiel 20, 12 says, Moreover, I gave them Sabbaths, this rhythm of rest, as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Sets them apart, apart from common use for extraordinary purposes in the ordinary of everyday life. All the world is running ragged, trying to find itself, trying to live without a rhythm of rest. To become who they ought to be, who they want to be. And in the process, forget who they ought to be in Christ as this pl- flowed into the New Testament, and we'll get into this next week, Mark 2, 27 says that, and Jesus said to them, 
The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. They had gotten that backwards. If you remember, they had all these laws, all these rules, and the Sabbath actually became a burden. And the whole design of the Sabbath was that it would be freedom, that you would be set aside. You would remember that you aren't a slave. You aren't a slave to what you do. And I'm giving you this rest, not as a burden for what you can't do, but as freedom from what you feel like you must do so that you can realign your relationship with me and your relationship with others. Trusting in me, celebrating my provision and recognizing and taking time to say, I am sanctified. I am satisfied with my work as God was satisfied with his work because I have my relationship and my identity in him. And then it flows out into what it is that he has called me to do in this life. One of the great heroes of the faith for myself and I'm certain for many of you here today is a man by the name of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliott died on January 8th, 1956 at the age of 28 years old on the shores of the Curare River in Ecuador. He and several other missionaries had been wooing the Harani tribe for a significant period of time. They were dropping gifts from, air, from the airplanes trying to build a relationship with these untouched people who had never encountered anyone outside of their own group. They landed on the shores of the river that day in 1956 and all five of them were speared to death by the Harani tribe, those who they were trying to reach. In his writings, Eliot says many, 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 many profound things. But this is one of my favorites. He says, I have found that most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. And I believe that nothing could be better. And I believe that when we rest, when we stop, we evidence our trust in God. We reflect on our thankfulness for his provision. And we recognize who we are in Jesus Christ as set aside apart from common use. Then we can evaluate, am I in the middle of God's will right now or not? Am I living in a way, am I trying to live in a way that I was never designed to live? Am I running myself ragged? Am I a slave to the work that has become an idol to me? Do I feel like it's so necessary for provision that I fail to trust God's provision? And in reality, at the end of the day, I am living in a way that God has never designed me to live and is not going to work for me long term. After the exodus, they had to get themselves organized. There were no laws. There was no structure. There was no culture other than slavery. They were on their way to the promised land Most scholars believe that it really only took them a couple of years to get from Egypt to the promised land. It's really in the grand scheme of things, not that far, but they had an awful lot of things to do. They had to set up the tabernacle and all of that and all the commands of how to do this and what the priests were. And it took a while to do all of that. And then they showed up at the promised land and they refused to go in. They were afraid. I'm going to wrap up our time today with a different picture Of God's rest as it relates to that experience. Found in Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 where it recounts that experience. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. As on the day at Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof. 
though they had seen my work. They saw all that I had done. They had seen me at the exodus. They had seen me care for them. They had seen me miraculously provide every morning bread, what's it, on the ground. And they refused to go in. For 40 years, I loathed that generation, the Exodus generation, and said, they are my people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, in this passage, the word rest doesn't describe that rhythm of rest in the Sabbath. This describes the land. The design ultimately was God would implement the Sabbath. They would live a regular rhythm of rest to declare their trust in God's provision, their remembrance for all he has provided, that they were set apart for his glory. They were then going to go into the rest of God, the land, where they would never be slaves again. They would have full reign under God's headship as their king. They would live in freedom. They would live out. They would cultivate the land. And all of their work would be to God's glory in this rhythm of rest, trusting him, remembering him, and seeing themselves as his instruments. And they refused. And they were unable because they were unwilling to enter God's rest. How do you get your identity? What are the things that contribute to how you feel about you? Is your identity in Jesus Christ? Is your identity in what you do? Is your identity in your job? Is your identity in being a mother? If you're a stay-at-home mom? The truth is our identity should not be connected to anything that we do. It should be connected to our relationship with Jesus Christ. How often do we do so that we can feel good about who we are? And God says, no, 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 no. You are to do because you are loved and accepted in Jesus Christ, who is your Lord and Savior. And then you are to go out and create. And on a regular basis, you are to stop Because number one, you were created in my image. We talked about this last week. You were created to create. And you were created to to exist in a rhythm of rest like God set the example back in Genesis. Today, the Sabbath. Why did God create the Sabbath? Why did he institute this? Number one. Because every time we rest, when we cease our work, we step away from what is often the idol of what we do. We declare that we trust him for our provision. Number two, every time we rest, it gives us an opportunity to stop and remember all that he has provided for us. Third and finally, when we stop and rest, we remember that our identity is in him, that we are set apart from common use. And even that which we do that is so common is set apart unto him because we are set apart unto him. Do you have a pattern of rest in your life? Are you running ragged with your tongue hanging out? I know many of us are. Are you living a lifestyle that you were never created to live Do you get your identity from what you do or do you get your identity from Jesus? It's my prayer that through this series and as we walk out of here today, that every single one of us would consider, how much do I trust God?
for the provision of my life? How good do I do How at remembering all God has provided for me? Or am I quick to race on to what I need to accomplish next? Do I recognize in my rhythm of rest that I am set apart, sanctified, kadosh for God's glory, set apart for his purposes? If I start there, then everything I do that he has called me to do is sanctified unto him. Are you here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're struggling with how it is that you ought to live? You're, you're trying to get your identity and all these things. You're kind of on the gerbil wheel of life. You're trying to do, 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 maybe to impress God or to impress those around you. I, I don't know. You've never come to a place in your life where Jesus Christ has become your Lord and Savior. Where you've said, I am a sinner. I need to set aside all of my own efforts, my work to embrace what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. And when I embrace his grace, his gift of eternal life through his death on the cross and set aside my own efforts, then and only then can my efforts find their rightful place as the outgrowth of my relationship with the living God. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ today, I want to encourage you to accept him as your savior Confess your sin, often the sin, not just of what you do that you shouldn't, but all that you do that has become an idol and your identity. And embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are our living God. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for setting aside the Sabbath in the Old Testament to teach us through their journey, what it is to trust you, to remember all you've done, and to recognize that we are set apart in Jesus Christ as your holy vessels taken out of common use for your special purposes so that even that which we do that is very common becomes sanctified through us as your creative effort for us to do. And Father, I pray for any who have never trusted Christ, that today would be the day that they stop doing and they start being in Christ. For your honor and your glory, we pray in your name. Amen.